This is the second in a series of talks on the seven stages of the spiritual path, titled Stage 2, Investigation of Teachings, recorded April 27, 1997, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning I'm going to be talking about the second stage of a spiritual path, the investigation of teachings, and it's part of a series that I've been doing here for a month or so. And as I said in the uh, introductory talk, any schemata of stages can only be an outline, a general sort of outline. And in fact, individuals can, uh, their own experience can vary quite a bit from the outline. Some people uh, actually go through the stages pretty methodically, and some people race ahead and then there's something that they haven't dealt with and they have to come back and deal with that and move around a lot. So last time we talked about the first stage, the awakening of faith, and I said it's brought about basically by three things, exhaustion, crisis, and guidance. And usually for most people, they start on a spiritual path seriously after their efforts to find happiness in worldly pursuits have been somewhat exhausted. Often this happens to people who have been fairly successful in a worldly way. Uh, this was my ca uh, the case with me. You set out to make money or uh, have a career and get a house and cars and all that stuff, and you think that's going to make you happy. You get there and you find it really isn't making you happy. There's something missing still in life. This uh, awakening faith can also be brought about by some crisis that happens. Often people going through a divorce or they're faced with a serious life-threatening illness or someone close to them dies. It makes them realize that life is impermanent and that the, all the objects, the things that we uh, normally look to to make us happy are impermanent. And so they're all going eventually to vanish. And so whatever happiness we have that depends on them is going to vanish. And so uh, this crisis, a life crisis like this, can make you take stock of your life and realize the certain futility in trying to uh, attain any sort of ultimate happiness in pursuing impermanent things. And at this stage, we usually start to think thoughts like, there must be more to life than this. Uh, is, it, is it really just about making money? Is it just about having houses and cars or whatever? The Buddhists call this beginning to have a dissatisfaction with samsara. Samsara, of course, is their term for this life we live under delusion. And we, become, we start to become dissatisfied with that. In the Arthurian Grail legends, Parsifal is a young knight who inadvertently stumbles on the Grail kingdom deep in a forest one day. This usually, these things happen deep in forests or up on mountaintops or whatever. But the Grail kingdom is a wasteland. And he's taken to the Grail castle and everyone in the castle is sick and the king is suffering from an incurable wound. And this is a metaphor for actually our life lived under delusion. We are actually living in the, uh, the Grail Kingdom, but it appears to us to be a wasteland. And the first time this happens to Parsifal, he's too polite to ask what's wrong here. And so the whole thing vanishes. So it's like this opportunity opened up for him, but because of this excessive politeness, he didn't want to 
disturb anybody or ask what's going on here, what's wrong here. Uh, the opportunity closed up for him. And then later in the story, this uh, old hag pursues him and, and says, you see, you failed to ask what's wrong there. It's, now you have to go back and find the Grail Kingdom again and ask this question. And this is a very telling story because it reflects an attitude that we usually have normally in life, especially when things aren't going too well. We don't really want to ask this question deeply. What's wrong here? And we spend our time trying to patch things up and uh, pretending everything's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. But when you're faced with real exhaustion of this worldly pursuit or some crisis, you begin to ask that question seriously. What is wrong here? What is wrong with life the way I'm leading it? So this is what the awakening of faith does. It uh, starts to ask that question in that stage. And in that state of questioning, an opportunity for guidance opens up. Uh, one way or another, you get some glimpse that there might be another way to live, another kind of spiritual happiness that transcends the limited sorts of happiness you can get from worldly things. This glimpse may be very powerful. It may be in the nature of a vision of the transcendent realm or a sense of the presence of God, very dramatic this way. Or it may be uh, something far less dramatic. You may run into a spiritual seeker, and just that little contact uh, gives you this idea there is another way to live. This is what happened to the Buddha you know, after he uh, had this crisis brought about by meeting a sick person, an old person, a dead person and he realized that all of life is impermanence. It created a tremendous psycho-spiritual crisis for him. And then just seeing a monk in saffron robes and asking his charioteer, who's that guy? What's he about? The charioteer said he's a monk and he's seeking enlightenment, release from all this. And that was the first guidance that the Buddha got. It may be something like just somebody gives you a book, a spiritual book, and you were never interested in spiritual things, and suddenly you read this book and it starts to speak to you. So the... Uh, this guidance then uh, usually also has a sort of a synchronistic or a serendipitous quality. There's something a little strange about it. And we can call this the first grace. The first thing that happens to you on a spiritual path is coming to you from the outside. At least it has that feel that, that somehow something's uh, arising in your circumstances that's leading you. And it is this glimpse, this grace that awakens this faith that there might be uh, truly some sort of happiness, uh, ultimate happiness that uh, transcends the, our worldly satisfactions. This is uh, expressed by Jesus when he says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And for him who knocks, the door is opened. And we find this in... Uh, other traditions as well, the same advice. You, you have a little glimpse of something happening. You don't know what it is. It's very mysterious, but keep seeking, keep looking. My favorite form of expressing this comes from Rumi, the great Sufi poet. And he says, in whatever state you may be, seek. Seek water constantly, O man of dry lips, for your dry lips give witness that in the end you will find a fountain. The lips dryness is a message from the water. If you keep on moving about, Without doubt, you will find me. So this awakening of faith starts us on the second stage of the spiritual path, investigating teachings and teachers and other ways of living. And this investigation is a quest. And it's very important to remember this. The word quest is related to question. It's not an answer. 
It's a question, and we're following a question. And we're following, really, the ancient questions that humanity has asked from the very beginning. Who am I? And where did I come from? And where am I going? And how should I live my life? And when these questions uh, surface in us, these deep questions, and we take them seriously, then we really are starting this serious investigation of teachings and teachers and so forth. And as I said last time, this requires the virtue of courage. Because once anybody starts to deviate from the conventional ways of living in whatever society you happen to be, starts to sort of break out of the mold, uh, people around you are going to think you're a little weird. And they're going to start saying, what's the matter with you? Are you going off to these weirdo New Agey groups? Or you're meditating? What's that? Or what are those spiritual books you're reading? How come you want to go partying tonight? You, you want to do what? You want to stay home and, and read? That's weird. And so you're going to start getting pressure to conform. Because, of course, when anybody starts to deviate from the beaten path, it, it gets everybody who's on the beaten path a little nervous because uh, then it, it throws into question their lives, even if they don't think of that consciously. That's, there's an element of that. And so you need courage to be able to resist that pressure to conform. And it really it's the courage to be able to say no. Uh, no, it's fine if you want to live that life, but I want to look for something else. I want to investigate. Start to uh, see if I can find what the mystery of my own life and life in general is about. Uh, this whole idea of this getting pressure has been true in all times and places. Going back to the first shamans who left their communities to go out to the mountains and go on vision quests and so forth. Plato wrote about it in his time. He says... Standing aside from the busy doings of mankind and drawing nigh to the divine, he is rebuked by the multitude as being out of his wits. And this whole accusation that uh, spiritual seekers are crazy or weirdos or nuts, this has been going on since, since the very beginning. This is nothing new in our society. Although I think we get it uh, worse in our society because there's, we don't live in a sacred society with any sense that there's any validity to this kind of quest. So it's even harder for a contemporary people living in Western society anyway. And then this uh, quest brings into play the great principle of attention. You have to start paying attention. Not only attention to, for instance, things you're reading or teachings or whatever, but really you have to start paying attention to your life. To what are the things that make you happy? And what are the things that cause your suffering? And really start to look into your life in a very nitty-gritty way. And you also have to start asking this question, what is true about my life? Never mind what uh, I've been taught, what my peers think, what my family thinks, and so forth. What really is true? You have to follow truth. And Simone Wilde describes this. She says, after months of inward darkness, I suddenly had the everlasting conviction that any human being, even though practically devoid of natural faculties, can penetrate to the kingdom of truth reserved for genius, if only he longs for truth and perpetually concentrates all his attention upon its attainment. Using our attention and, and paying attention and being aware of what is going on is very important. And then in the stage of investigation of teachings, you start the practice of inquiry, even though you may not call it a formal practice, but in fact, that's what you're doing. You're making inquiry. And if you read books and if you go to uh, teachings and teachers, you are practicing inquiry, whether you know it or not. Mm 
If you are already part of a tradition, for instance, if you were a Hindu and you had this awakening of faith, uh, you would start looking for a guru or a teacher. That's traditional in Indian society. Uh, just because you're practicing religion doesn't mean you've had this awakening of faith and now you want to find out for yourself the truth and you want to go on a, a mystical path. There, there are uh, multitudes of people who've lived in sacred societies who have tried to live good lives, moral lives, with the idea either that when they die they're going to heaven or uh, they're going to be reborn into a better life and so forth. So just living in a sacred society doesn't mean that you are on a, a mystical spiritual path. At least you're not consciously on one. But when you actually start looking to find out the truth for yourself, and hopefully in your lifetime, then you are. So even in a society like India, you would go out and you'd find a guru that suited you. In our society, seekers usually start by investigating a lot of different traditions or ways because we're very much like Rome in, the, say, the first century B.C., that our own sacred cosmology has collapsed, our own sacred paradigm, and there's a vacuum, and these traditions are pouring in from around the world, from all over the empire. And so in Rome, you had uh, oh, representatives of the Mithra cult, uh, the cult of Isis, of Dionysius, of Orpheus, of uh, Christians, and so forth, all competing with each other in a certain sense, and saying that they had these exotic teachings from the East, and, and Romans would flock to them and go around and uh, go to various meetings. If you lived in the Roman city of Alexandria, it was quite well organized. There were these schools that these different religions and different philosophies had, and people used to spend their equivalent of their weekend going around to different schools and hearing different lectures by, oh, a Jew and a Christian and a, a Platonist or whatever. Anyway, uh, this is very equivalent to the situation we're living in here in 20th century America. And what do you do? Well, it's probably what most of you have done. You go to workshops, you go to conferences, you go to lectures, you start reading books, you start investigating. And you can imagine this as a kind of a wheel. You can think of a wheel with spokes. And if you think of the spokes representing all these mystical traditions, uh, if you look at that, you might look at uh, Islam over here and Buddhism on this side of the wheel, and they look far, far apart. But if you found the mystical traditions, the mystical core of those traditions, if you found Sufis or um, Buddhists who still uh, have a sense that enlightenment's what it's all about, as you start traveling, you would find you'd actually be coming closer and closer together as you, as you move towards the center. And in our culture... Uh, on this wheel, you'd find all sorts of other paths, all sorts of therapies and body work and astrology and whatnot. And as you're moving around this circumference, it, it can be quite confusing. Not all of those paths are going to take you to the center. But you experiment, you stop here and uh, try a little of this, move around, try a little of that. One of the common pitfalls for beginners, which was certainly the case for me, is that in the beginning we think we can attain spiritual happiness or spiritual wisdom through our old worldly ways of learning and behaving. So we often think that this is some sort of intellectual knowledge. If we could only master this intellectually, uh, this would give us wisdom. Or that if we could only learn some new psychological skills and techniques, this would make us happy. And this was certainly true, as I said of uh, myself, and in the beginning, I got interested in Jungian uh, therapy and philosophy. And if you know something about Jung, 
He talks about the anima and the animus and uh, the four functions that a human being has, sensation, intuition, intellect, and the emotion. And a lot of the Jungian work is bringing to light repressed aspects of your personality. If you have oppressed your emotional side, you work on that, trying to create a balance and a harmony, uh, working with projections, anima projections, animus projections, shadow projections, and things like that. And in the beginning, I thought, well, this is what this new life is about. If I could, if I can understand Jung, and if I can master these things, and if I can create this harmony, and if I uh, can see what's going on, not only in myself, but in other people, that will be a new life for me. That will be a spiritual life, and that will make me happy. And this is not, by the way, to knock Jung, but that is not enough. And at a certain point, I began to realize, no, this is not going to bring me ultimate happiness just because I intellectually understand Jung and because I achieve some sort of uh, psychological harmony or balance. Some people moving around this circumference become what I call workshop junkies. Uh, I don't know if this is still true because I've been sort of out of the circuit, but at least down in Los Angeles during the 80s, You'd run into people, they'd go to a workshop one weekend and, oh, I don't know, working with auras. And they'd have a great high from that. They'd actually see auras and they, they could see auras and other people and they were really excited about that. And then you meet them six months later and now they were into Hawaiian firewalking or something. And that great high about that. And then uh, something else in another six months. And so uh, the spiritual life becomes going from one high to another, one new experience, one novel experience uh, to another. Other people uh, can often settle into some sort of exoteric religion. They might find a uh, fundamentalist Christian group, and they've had a spiritual experience, they've had an awakening, genuine, and here's a group of people who knows how to interpret that. Uh, you've been reborn, and you've found Jesus, and you've accepted Jesus in your life, and there's a way to live, a moral way to live, uh, a way to pray and so forth, and some people this is enough. They'll settle into that and that will be a, their a spiritual um, practice. For people who in this society who are a little bit more intellectually sophisticated, who would actually sort of poo-poo that, can fall into the same trap. Uh, they fall into a new age idea that spirituality is about learning a new paradigm the quantum self and so forth. And they start going to workshops about the quantum self and consciousness. And they meet a new set of friends who all speak the same kind of language and share their interests. And they move away from the old patterns of just seeking maybe worldly success and so forth. But still, this is uh, equivalent to an exoteric belief system. And that satisfies them. But if you want to penetrate to the center of this wheel, from that perspective, you are not yet on a mystical path. And a great Sufi sheikh, Sadi, warns about this when he writes, I fear you will not reach Mecca, O nomad, for the road which you are on leads to Turkestan. And this is the idea of we can be deceived about the nature of our spiritual path, where it's really taking us if it's not a mystical path. So, uh, if you're not sidetracked by becoming a workshop junkie or falling into some sort of very comfortable situation on the periphery of this wheel, you begin to realize that a mystical path, at any rate, entails something far more mysterious and radical than you had at first imagined. There's a very good uh, concrete example from the experience uh, here at the center. There was a woman in our group who had been coming to the center a number of years and going on retreat and so forth. And one retreat, 
uh, we have a silent retreat for those of you who haven't been on our retreats. And at the end, we get to sum up uh, what our experience was and share our experiences with each other. And at the end of this retreat, she said, you know, what I've realized in this retreat is that this path is not just another therapy. This is something very different. And she said, I'm going to have to think about this, whether I want to continue or not. And this is an example of coming to this insight, this little realization that, whoa, she, what she'd gotten herself into was something very mysterious and actually quite radical that she had not been aware of coming to the center for all these years and going on, on retreats and so forth. Just to tell you the end of the story, she'd go off and think about it, and she decided she wanted to pursue it, and she's a great practitioner. But it was very important that she came to this little realization. Uh, the old ways of learning and of behaving and the worldly skills don't work on a mystical path. This is why the author of The Cloud of Unknowing wrote, For however much a man may know about every created spiritual thing, his intellect will never be able to comprehend the uncreated spiritual truth. We think that our intellect's going to uh, understand this. And the intellect goes on thinking this, even though we know intellectually it's not, but the intellect insists, yes, there must be some way to understand this. But that's not how it works on a spiritual path. Lao Tzu, the great Taoist, probably summed this up best when he wrote, In the pursuit of worldly learning, one knows more every day. But in the pursuit of the spiritual way, one does less every day. One does less and less until one does nothing at all. And when one does nothing at all, there is nothing that is undone. And you start to look at that and you say, what is he talking about? This is different. This is weird. This is not like going to college or a university and getting a degree in comparative religion or whatever. This is something very different. So... What we're seeing here is in this stage of investigating teachings, partly what goes on is this exhaustion of old ways of thinking and doing. And it's through this process of this quest that this exhaustion of these old ways of approaching the world leads to, what, another little crisis. And in that other little crisis, we get another little chance for guidance. There's some good examples from history and I'll give you two of them, because uh, they're quite clear-cut. One was Al-Ghazali. Al-Ghazali was a famous Sufi, and he lived in the 11th century in Baghdad. And by the time he was in his 30s, he had become a professor of the University of Baghdad. I say professor because I'm trying to find an equivalent Western word, but at that time to be a teacher at this university was really a big deal, like being a Harvard professor, an Oxford professor or something. Even more so... Carl Sagan would be a good image to keep in mind. Imagine Carl Sagan. He's well-known, he's famous, he has lots of students and so forth. And at the time, of course, these universities, the disciplines they taught were all in the context of the Muslim worldview. That was the only worldview there was, Muslim cosmology. And so sort of a prerequisite for that was believing in Allah. And in the middle of this, at the height of his career, he lost uh, his faith in God. As he described it, the glass of the naive faith of his youth broke. And this was a tremendous inner crisis for him. If you can Im imagine Carl Sagan losing his faith in astrology, suddenly, I mean astrology, <laughs> astronomy. If Carl Sagan suddenly thought astronomy is false, there's no basis for it. You know what I mean? 
And here he's teaching it, and he's going on television, and he's teaching astronomy, but inwardly he does not believe it. So what did Al-Ghazali do? He started this investigation, this investigation of uh, teachings, and he went through all the theologians of his day and the philosophers of his day, and he studied their works, and he was looking for some other basis for his faith than that kind of faith that we're brought up with, you know, God's in the sky and he'll take care of you. And he realized he would never get this from philosophy, he would never get this from theology, and then he ran across the mystics, the Sufis, and they offered direct experience. They said, no, we're not going to try to convince you intellectually, but if you follow our path, you will have your own personal experience. You can verify Allah for yourself. You don't need to believe in anything. So he realized if he was ever going to get his faith back, this is the only way it was going to work for him. So now he realized his old ways, his intellectual ways of, of thinking about this weren't going to work, but this created a tremendous crisis for him because here he is, this professor at this university, and the Sufis are off in the desert and so forth. You know, they're not uh, in Baghdad. And he realizes if he's really going to get into this, he's going to have to give up his life as a professor. And he describes this uh, battle that went on inside him for six months, that every morning he'd wake up with a resolve. Today I'm going to give my notice, and I'm going to get my affairs in order, and then I'm going to go off and join the Sufis. And he, the way he described it was the voice of Satan would start talking to him, which is nothing but the voice of the ego, you know. And, the, and Satan would say to him, well, are you sure you want to do this, Al? I mean, uh, you've worked hard to get here, you know, and if you just give all this up, it might, might not be easy to come back and get it back. And by the end of the day, his resolve had d dissolved. And by the way, I know this voice very well. This was exactly my case in Hollywood when I was trying to decide to leave Hollywood or not, you know. Uh, it's very clearly the voice of the ego. And if you are uh, now really serious about following a spiritual path, it, it starts to sound like it's some other voice inside. I mean, it really has this sense of a battle going on. In any case, this led to this crisis, and he struggled with this and struggled with this until finally one day he went to lecture, and he opened his mouth, and nothing came out. He had been struck mute. He couldn't speak. And he went to see the physicians of the time, and they came to see him, and they said, this is not a physical problem. This is a spiritual problem. It's a problem of the heart, an affliction of the heart, not of the body. He was very astute of the physicians of the time. Our physicians wouldn't know that. Uh, but in any case, uh, for him, this became a form of guidance. He took this as God guiding him. Again, another form of guidance that came out of this crisis. Well, that's it. You can't lecture. So he did uh, give everything up. And he did go pursue a Sufi path, and eventually, 10 or how many years later, he came back, uh, now with his own verification, his own experience, and he became a great Sufi philosopher. So this is one example of how this stage of investigating teachings brings about a, a certain exhaustion, and then a crisis, and then more guidance. Another example comes from the Tibetan tradition, Marpa. Marpa was a... 10th century Tibetan, and in those days, the way you became a famous scholar, a famous religious person, was to go to India, make this long, difficult journey across the mountains down to India, and get uh, Buddhist texts, because India was rich in Buddhist texts, and, and Buddhism hadn't really uh, taken hold in Tibet yet, or at least there weren't that many texts. So he made this long journey, he saved up his money, and he... Uh, arrived in India, and he started going around with this friend of his, buying up these precious texts. Now, he's 
thinking all about this in terms of a merchant. He's going to buy texts and he's going to go to lectures and he's going to take notes and he's going to come back with all these teachings and people will think he's great and he'll be uh, famous. And so he stumbles on Naropa, who was a, a great Indian Buddhist master, and he uh, gives Naropa gold for teachings. And Naropa starts giving him teachings and he's taking all these notes and He's very happy with this, and he, he meets up with a friend that he came from Tibet with, and he shows these teachings to the friend, and the friend says, these teachings are worthless. We've had these teachings already. These are, you know, elementary teachings. So he's real disappointed, and he goes back to Naropa, and uh, Naropa now won't give him any more teachings, but he tells him to go see this guy, Kukuripa, that lives on this island. This is a slightly legendary story, but lives on this island with all these wild dogs. And this guy lives uh, in rags. He's a, he's a hermit. He's, a, you know, filthy. But Marpa goes to see him, and he asks for teachings, and he gets out his notepad, and Kukuripa starts going, blah, 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 blah. he just starts talking gibberish. And meanwhile, these dogs are trying to attack him. He's having to fend off these dogs, and he's living in this stench and this filth, and he's starting to go a little bananas. He doesn't know what's happening here. And finally, he gives up taking notes. He puts his notes aside, and Kukripa starts to teach him. And so, again, he, he got to this crisis. He couldn't get what he wanted through this taking notes and this intellectual approach. And it was only when Kukripa saw that he had dropped that, then he would start to really teach him. And then there are more adventures that uh, Marpa has uh, to actually learn this lesson. He eventually goes back to Naropa, and Naropa demands all this gold for the highest teachings. And he works so hard, and he gets all this gold... And he gives it to Naropa, and Naropa throws it away and says, what do I want with this gold? And it's this sort of shock that this is something really different that really opens him up to the teachings. And finally, he does get the teachings, and Marpa goes on to become one of the great uh, lineage holders in the Tibetan tradition. So these are just two classic examples of how uh, the same process of exhaustion, crisis, and guidance works. And as we will see in the rest of the series, in every stage of the spiritual path, this is what happens. This is, in fact, how you move from one stage to another. You exhaust what there is to learn in that stage, and you reach a crisis, and then something happens, and there's a little guidance, and you move into the next stage. Through this experience, uh, particularly this experience of exhaustion and crisis, and the old ways don't work, that you start to learn the virtue of humility. And humility is indispensable on a spiritual path. Because from a mystical point of view, nothing is the way it appears. Nothing is the way it seems. All your life, you've taken things for granted. And what you're going to start to learn on a mystical path is they ain't like that. Uh, the Tibetan master Longchenpa describes this. He says, a foolish person is attached to phenomena as true and apprehends them as gross material phenomena, I and self, whereas they are like a dream girl who disappears when touched. Now, a lot of people read that and think, see, intellectually, maybe they can even understand how that's true and so forth. But he's not talking about intellectually understanding it. He's talking about a shift in perception here. Rumi writes, This world is maintained by imagination. You call it reality since it can be seen and perceived. And those meanings of which the world is an offshoot, you call imagination. The true situation is the reverse. Uh, he's saying, you know, we're going around the world. We think that reality uh, is this tangible phenomena, you know, the clocks and the uh, benches and gongs and things. And then we uh, 
look inside and we, we see meanings and things and we think, well, that's imaginary, you know? And he's saying the true situation is the reverse. That's the reality and this is imaginary. And what mystics are pointing to is not a philosophical understanding of this, but a direct, immediate realization inside of it. But before you can have that, you must really become humble about your own experience. You must start to question your own experience. You must stop taking things for granted. And then you might have some uh, Gnostic flash as the Confucius Cao Pang Lung did in the 15th century, 16th century rather, and he had been uh, grappling with these teachings for quite a while, and he'd been taking this little pilgrimage up this river, and he stopped in this little tower, and just <coughs> pondering and pondering, and he just he couldn't understand these things. I mean, just his intellectual mind wouldn't get a hold of it. And finally, in a, a, a state of kind of exhaustion from doing all this meditating and trying to understand, <coughs> he says, suddenly I realized it really is like this. In reality, there's not a single thing. With this single thought, all entanglements were broken. Suddenly, it was as if a load of a hundred pounds had fallen to the ground in an instant. It was as if a flash of lightning had penetrated the body and pierced the intelligence. So this is where this leads, you see. So when Longchenpa says, a foolish person is attached to phenomena is true, thinks phenomena are real, that's a mirror teaching for you, if, if that's what you believe. He's saying, you're foolish. This is, you're a fool. I can't be a fool. There must be something wrong here. But if you start to learn the virtue of humility, you start to accept the possibility, well, maybe this is. Maybe I've been totally wrong all my life about how I perceive the world. But when you take such teachings seriously, the familiar world of your everyday life starts to become a little mysterious to you. And more importantly, you start to become something of a mystery to yourself. When you start to turn attention inward and ask these questions like, who am I and where did I come from? You don't really know who you are anymore or what you're doing here. Now, most seekers find this uh, quite uncomfortable, as most of us do, by the way, just generally in life. You know, whenever we thought we knew something and we find we we were wrong, and especially if there isn't something to substitute for it right away that we can glom onto, we get a little uncomfortable. And we start to realize, on a, uh, if you're on a mystical path, that this inquiry isn't going to add to your knowledge. You're not going to accumulate more and more knowledge the way you would if you're going for a degree at the UFO there. But it's actually going to start stripping it away, taking it away from you. You can actually get quite panicky about that. But in truth, this is the beginning of true wisdom, of real wisdom. You might not even know it at the time. Uh, Socrates realized this in the, during the course of his own investigation of the teachings, something he went through in his early life. He went out and he uh, listened to all these philosophers who claimed to know what, what the good was, what was beautiful, what was true, and he'd go listen to them. And this is how he responded. He says, I went away thinking to myself that I was wiser than this man. The fact is that neither of us knows anything beautiful or good, but he thinks he does know when he doesn't, and I don't know and don't think I do. So I am wiser than he is by only this trifle. That's beautifully put. To know that you don't know is really the beginning of true wisdom.
And it's usually somewhere at this point that uh, the person investigating these teachings, making these inquiries and so forth, begins to realize they're going to need a guide on this path. They're going to need a teacher, and they're going to need a set of teachings and practices, uh, because it is so radical and mysterious. Uh, Ananda Moyamai, a great Hindu mystic of this century, writes, Just as without the help of teachers and experts, one cannot become proficient in worldly knowledge that is taught in the universities, so the sublime knowledge of the absolute does not come without the guidance of a competent guru. And you'll find the same advice in uh, virtually all other traditions. The Buddhist Awakening of Faith Sutra says, By nature, sentient beings have affinity for emancipation and enlightenment, but without suitable causes and conditions, they cannot attain them. Even if they have a, a Buddha nature, but do not chance to meet a Buddha or a good learned master or a bodhisattva, they could not of themselves attain nirvana. And the reason for this is, once you begin a spiritual path, the ego mind is always looking to co-opt whatever insights you have, whatever experience you have, whatever happens to you in meditation, and use it to reinforce itself. And the ego will, uh, will deceive you over and over again. And it's really almost impossible, if not impossible, to spot this on your own. This is really why you need a guide, a guru, a teacher, uh, someone who's walked the path before and sees what's going on, because you can't see it. And so that they can point out to you, uh, you may have a genuine insight, but now you're interpreting in a way uh, that's leading you off the path. This is why Rumi writes, Nothing kills the ego but the shadow of the sheikh. Cling tightly to the skirt of that ego killer. And this is the sheikh's role. The sheikh is a teacher in Sufism. That's the title. Theophane the recluse, an Orthodox Christian, gives a very specific example of this, talking about the Jesus prayer. The Jesus prayer is not just a, a vague prayer, but a, really a contemplative prayer that is as precise as any of the meditations we do with breath or anything else. And he writes, If anyone tries to practice it, that's the Jesus prayer, by himself, merely from descriptions and books, he cannot escape illusion. In any description, only an external outline of the work is given. A book cannot provide all the detailed advice which is supplied by the starts. The starts is their word for girl. Who understands the inner state that should accompany the prayer and so can watch over the beginner and give him the further guidance that he needs. Since methods of this kind naturally lead to a certain degree of concentrated attention and warmth, whoever does not have by him a reliable judge may come to imagine that this limited warmth is indeed what he is seeking, and that grace has descended upon him, whereas in fact it is not yet there. And so he begins to think that he possesses grace without actually having it. Such is the nature of illusion, and this illusion will thereupon distort all the subsequent course of his inner life. Now, on our last retreat, for those of you on our last retreat, we were trying to distinguish a little bit between a, a genuine state of clarity and false states of uh, laxity that look like clarity. This is the same thing here. You can start a Jesus prayer and you'll get into altered states and they'll feel nice and they'll feel warm and all that. And then you'll think, ah, now this is in their terms grace. And then you'll proceed from there, but you're starting off on the wrong foot. And then everything else you do will be based on this assumption. So he's saying you need a start, a teacher, 
who can, knows the inner state and then can correct and say, no, that's not quite it. Why don't you do a little bit more of this and so forth and guide you to that state of grace. Now, of course, there are apparent exceptions to this. For instance, uh, in my case, although I had teachers, various teachers who, who in this process of investigating the teachings led me in this direction or that direction, I never had one uh, in-flesh human teacher that sort of guided me through the whole path. So if you looked at me from the outside, you'd say, well, he didn't have a teacher. But I did have a teacher. I had Athena, an inner teacher. And again, this is something that is not all that rare. We see lots of examples in history. Uh, Socrates uh, himself was one. He writes about it. He had this companion, as he called it, inside who would guide him. Ibn Arabi, a great Sufi, had Qadir was his greatest teacher, as he said. Qadir is an archetypal figure, doesn't appear in the flesh. Well, Teresa Avila had the voice of Jesus guiding. But again, this is certainly possible, and I can vouch for that, but you also have to be careful because this is something that it's easy for the ego to deceive you about. I think the, the two things uh, you can look for in this is, one, does this uh, inner guidance have a real autonomous quality, or is it something your imagination is cooking up? And if it has an autonomous quality, a truly autonomous quality, uh, the kinds of advice you will get are not necessarily things you want to do. In fact, they may often be things you don't want to do, or at least uh, things that you don't understand why you should be doing them. If you're only getting advice about things you want to do and things you understand, that's not a teacher. You don't need that kind of advice. That's your ego. Uh, you need a teacher to point you in directions you may not want to go or you don't know the reason for going. And there's another sign, at least in my experience, that this is a genuine uh, inner teacher, and that is you get advice based on a kind of knowledge that you don't have and couldn't possibly have. So sometimes this might appear in a sort of a prophetic context. I don't know, you, you get this uh, direction to go someplace, and then you get there, and sure enough, there's something there, that's very specific, and you realize why now you are here. And you couldn't have known that with, through your intellectual mind. And again, you have to be kind of careful with this because it's easy to, to read backwards, you know, and then to sort of make up the backstory as you go along. But there certainly are such things as genuine inner teachers. And if you have one, you don't need an outer teacher. Uh, the Buddha apparently had no teacher. Now here the Buddha say you have to have a teacher uh, in order to become enlightened. But the Buddha himself apparently didn't have an outer teacher. But actually that's not true. And if we look at his life, in the six years he spent investigating the teachings and moving through these various stages, he had teachers, these great Hindu ascetics, who taught him these meditative techniques that took him to very high states of absorption, and they served him well, because what did he do? He exhausted all that. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. He went through that, he exhausted it, he didn't attain enlightenment, and he ended up in this great crisis, sitting under the Bodhi tree. So he did have teachers, even though it's not the way we classically think of them. In point of fact, ultimately, no teacher, inner or outer or anywhere, can lead you to enlightenment. They lead you to the threshold. But the last step, you're on your own. And Ramana Maharshi expresses this when he says, God and the Guru will only show you the way to release. They will not by themselves take the soul to the state of release. And then we might ask about Ramana Maharshi himself, who of course didn't have any uh, human teachers, and his path was only 15 minutes. He didn't really have some 
archetypal inner teacher guiding him or whatever. But his whole path was an investigation, an inquiry into death. He thought he was going to die. He plunged into death. He went to the see what was at the bottom of death. And in that sense, death was his teacher. In a certain sense, you could say it's the same with the Buddha sitting under that Bodhi tree. He resolved, all right, this is it. I've gone through all these techniques. I've gone through all these meditations. I've heard all the teachings. Nothing's worked. Everything is totally exhausted. I am going to sit under this Bodhi tree, and I am going to either be enlightened or die. If you get to that point, death is your teacher. And in fact, that is the last stage of the path. When you are actually at that point where you are facing physical death and even fear of physical death has been put aside because enlightenment is more important to you. As Simone Weil said, that truth is more important to you than even physical death. Uh, that really is a description of the threshold of enlightenment. Okay, then, for most people, and this isn't always the case, but for most people, the stage of investigating teachings culminates when you find a teacher and make a commitment to a certain set of practices. It's like you've been traveling around the circumference of this wheel, and you've been trying out various things, and this is, uh, not only is it okay to do this, you should be doing this, you shouldn't be rushing into one particular uh, group, one particular path, or whatever, you want to find what's right for you, because it's no... Uh, critique of a path, it may be a perfectly great path, but just isn't right for you, it doesn't match your own individual disposition, you find that, you find that teacher, and you find that set of practices, and now you start making the inward journey towards the center of the wheel, the center of the mandala, right? So that really is the coming to the end of the stage of investigating teachings. In uh, established traditions, there'll usually be some ceremony. If you're a Buddhist, that's the point where you would take refuge vows, the three vows of refuge. Uh, if you're a Hindu and you find a guru and you've spent some time and you want to become the guru's formal disciple, there's usually an initiation ceremony of some sort. But the outward ceremony isn't really important. It's what's going on in your heart. And this finding the teacher then is really the second grace that happens to you on the spiritual path. The first grace was that glimpse in the stage of awakening of faith that there is some sort of transcendent reality. There is something beyond this world of form. And the second grace is finding your teacher, a guide who can lead you uh, to that. Lali Shwari, a Kashmir saint, tells us her experience with this. She says, After going through so much trouble in the world, after facing so many obstacles, I kept searching here and there until I finally got tired. And at that moment, I had the darshan of Guru Siddhana. Lali knew at last everything would be fine. So she's summed this up in a nutshell. She's uh, had this experience of exhaustion and crisis in the world. She started searching. She searched until she got tired, until even that search became exhausted at a certain point. And then, boom, she met her Guru Siddhana and had darshan. And then from then on, she knew that everything would go well. If the seeker's commitment now to the teacher and the practices is genuine, now there starts to be a reorganization of the priorities in one's life. You have to physically make time for meditation, for reading, for going to teachings, and so forth. But this does not mean that this commitment is by any means a complete and total commitment yet. 
even though it may be complete and total for you at the time, you may feel like you're making a complete and total commitment. Uh, for most seekers, they have no idea really what true commitment entails, what it's going to require. So it's really you make the commitment, and then by trying to keep the commitment, you find out what commitment's really all about. And truly speaking, I think this is a good thing. If anybody knew what this commitment really entailed, nobody would go on a mystical path. So this little bit of uh, ignorance in this case is actually kind of a blessing. But really the important thing here in these two stages is that you have this experience of an awakening of faith. You start to investigate teachings. You find a teacher and uh, some practices. And you're still, though, in danger of, we might say, going back to sleep again. Other things may happen in your life. Uh, maybe you got divorced, and that's what started you on a spiritual path, and you're going in this direction, and now somebody new comes into your life. You, you finally met your soulmate, and you get all interested in that, and your spiritual path and practice sort of goes in the background and whatnot. And you think, well, this time, even though the first one didn't work out, this is, will really make me happy. And this isn't, I mean, a, a, a total disaster or whatever, because, you know, eventually the, you may face another crisis later. But for a time, you sort of go back to sleep. And in these two opening stages, you're in danger of that. And this is why Rabia says uh, she has a reminder to herself, she gives herself. And let me leave you with Rabia's words. She says, my soul, how long will you go on falling asleep and waking up again? The time is almost here when you will fall into so deep a sleep that only the trumpet of the resurrection will have the power to wake you. So she's saying, you know, we spend our lives and we go through periods where this sort of opportunity opens up. Uh, often uh, when we're teenagers, you know, teenagers are so uh, ready to question their parents and the way they've been brought up, there's an opening here. And often they get interested in spiritual things. This was the case with me. And then we, it closes up again. We go back to sleep for a while. And then we, you know, get involved in worldly pursuits and so forth. And then, uh, oh, maybe, you know, in your early 40s or something, a midlife crisis, you've had some success and, and it hasn't worked out. You don't really have the deep, deep happiness that you... Uh, really long for. And so you begin to question again. It opens up. And then people can go back to sleep again. And then maybe late in life, as you're approaching death, you really start to look back on your life and say, well, really, what was all about? And you realize you have only little time left. And that can be a time for a great a period of awakening. But once you've uh, had this little bit of awakening, it's important to try to remember not to fall back to sleep. Because as Rabia says, life is precious, life is short, and ultimately we're going to fall asleep, and then there's no more opportunity, at least not in this uh, plane, this way of doing things. So this is the stage of investigation of teachings. begins with this quest, the search, trying to find really just what a spiritual path, a mystical path is all about, and realizing uh, in that process that it's really very mysterious and that you need guidance, you need a teacher, you need practices if you're going to pursue this seriously. And then it ends with finding a teacher and making a commitment to some certain particular way of walking this path. So are there any questions or comments? Yeah. When you talk about finding a teacher, um, I think we know people who have multiple teachers, and it seems to be, it's, instead of just one teacher, it seems they, they seem to be well served by two or more, and uh, and I just wanted to verify that you don't see that as a conflict. Well, 
as I, again, I said in the beginning, this is sort of a general outline and not everybody follows exactly. Um, I think it's probably true to say, though, if you read through the biographies of mystics, that most mystics, while they may have had uh, several teachers, especially in the beginning, ended up with one teacher that they looked back on and said, this was my primary teacher. Ibn Arabi is a good example of that. He had several in-flesh teachers, but actually women uh, in Spain. But he always said at the very end, Kadir was really my main teacher. Dr. Wolf had uh, several teachers, including um, Hazrat Inyat Khan and so forth. But when he found Shankara, he knew. I mean, this was, okay, he found his guru, so to speak. In some traditions, like the Sufi tradition particularly, it's not necessarily so much that you have one sheikh, but you will study with a sheikh for a while, and then they will pass you on to another sheikh. And so, even though you're not having one sheikh, you're having a thread of guidance that is quite conscious. And so, you, you pa you're passed on to learn something else from another sheikh, and you're passed on, and so forth. So, it doesn't really matter so much if there are a lot of teachers, as long as there's a continuity and a coherence through the uh, teachings that you're getting from these various teachers. <clears throat> that makes sense, because as you talked about... Uh a teaching being very applicable to one stage of the path and path and being contradicted possibly by late teachings. Mm -hmm. I was wondering about multiple simultaneous teachers as opposed to the thread. I think most of us go through sequential, sort of like uh, spiritual polygamy. Again, I think, uh, I think that, you know, certainly people do have multiple teachers at, at any one time. But for instance, in the Tibetan tradition, uh, you have your main, your root guru. And it's perfectly fine, acceptable to go take teachings from other gurus. Like at Cloud Mountain, Ginla came, for instance, to teach a, a year meditation retreat. Uh, and I read the uh, transcripts of the teaching. There were people there who thought of Dalai Lama as their root guru. But that doesn't mean they couldn't take teachings from Ginla. Do you see what I mean? And it works very well in a tradition like that, like a Tibetan tradition, where there's a real continuity in the teachings themselves. Uh, I think it's more murky, and, and it doesn't mean it couldn't work for somebody, but for instance, if you had your teachers, or one was a Sufi sheikh, and one was a Tibetan guru, and one was this, you know, I think at some point you'd want to be making a choice and, and really following one set of uh, practices. You know, one of the things I was thinking is that uh, there may also be, uh, if you're in different traditions, it may be that there are different goals. Like if one were a member of uh, some church, the, the goal, the minister, the teacher would not be necessarily to have you enlightened. It would be to fulfill the, the uh, doctrines of the church and maybe have you do devotional practices or good works or these things. And that I think that if you can make a, the distinction between teachers whose goal is for you to become enlightened and teachers whose goal is for you to do good works and get... Um, be a good person. Well, yes, I think that is an important distinction. It's always better to have, uh, if not an enlightened teacher, someone who understands that that is the end of the path. But to play the other side, you can certainly learn a lot from people who don't have that as a goal. Mm -hmm. And they, in that sense, they're your teacher. And you may be, in that sense, wiser than them. You may take from them very valuable knowledge, and you have a sense of where you're going with it, that is beyond their understanding of it, but they're still serving you as a teacher. You see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it seems to me that there's <clears throat> there's these two different 
spiritual practices, one of, of the techniques of, 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 of Tai Chi and meditation and, and gurus who help you towards your discipline and towards your moral the spiritual practices. And the other more Christian bhakti thing of just, you just have to have that relationship with God, that relationship with Jesus, that relate and just search for that relationship, search for that. So I'm wondering how these two play. Mm. I mean, and, and I, I think the Christians would say that all this other stuff is just self-help. You know, you need that personal relationship with Jesus and God and that you'll come eventually to a suffering where, where the other techniques don't satisfy you. Yes, but then Jesus is your inner teacher. If you really develop that sort of true personal relationship with Jesus, the way I would look at it is Jesus then is a form of the divine appearing to you, you know, a medium, well, this is the way Christians often look at it, to teach you. That becomes your teacher. And as I mentioned, uh, Teresa of Avila was a Christian, or Julian of Norwich, they had a direct relationship with Jesus who directly taught them, led them. In, in, you know, in visions, in insights and so forth, that they knew, uh, had no mistake that these were coming from Jesus. So uh, I think you're right, especially in the Western Christian tradition, there's much less emphasis on a personal uh, outward teacher. Uh, but in the uh, Eastern Orthodox tradition, they definitely have starts and so forth teachers. And even in the Catholic tradition, there weren't these long, well-connected chains of lineage but um, old Catherine of Siena, for instance, she had her circle of disciples around her. She was their teacher. In every respect, she was like a guru, and she wasn't even you know, a, a, a nun or anything, but they recognized her degree of spiritual realization, and she just attracted this group of people. So it's not, uh, I don't think it's so clear-cut between East and West, is what I'm trying to say. I think that the reason, these, these saints, they have that, connection with God and Jesus, that personal relationship, so other people just hang out with them mm -hmm. in order to get it, mm -hmm. you know, but it's that personal relationship, and, and it's not really, you know, any, any technique or any self-discipline. Uh, well, again, if you read through the Christian mystics, mm -hmm. you'll find that they did have techniques and whatnot. For instance, this Jesus prayer in, this, yeah. in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, they don't call it meditation. Mm -hmm. They call it contemplative prayer. And they have a very good understanding of stages you go through in contemplative prayer. First it's prayer, vocal prayer, and then it becomes prayer of quiet. Mm -hmm. And they have a very, read Teresa of Avila, for instance, um, The Interior Castles, which is all about seven stages. She puts it in terms of a metaphor of entering these mansions within you, this castle. You're going through seven chambers. And what happens in each stage and how you can be deceived in various stages and, and what the difficulties are. So th they were really quite astute. And it doesn't look outwardly like the same techniques in the East, but if you examine it, they're based on the same principles, focusing attention, silencing the mind, all those things. It's been lost in the Christian tradition as it's generally presented to the public today. But for thousands of years, it was very much part of the Christian tradition. It'd be interesting to go investigate and see for yourself. You can ask Jennifer, she can show you some of these books. Yeah, I have. I have. Yeah. 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 Does Dan's question relate to, maybe I misunderstood, the Bhakti versus Janani approach to, to enlightenment? I, that's what I was getting from this question a bit, the intellectual versus the devotional. Um, well, again, you'll find, looking east and looking west, you'll find both aspects and both um, cultures, yeah. to use a yeah, but broad term. A, there seems to be a body of people uh, from both... India and as well that say that bhakti is the only thing 
it's just for that, them. That, yeah, that's the problem. Well, you know, that's the, well they would say yeah. that for everybody, but you know, that, that, and I'm just uh, personally, I came up with certain crises. In my, I had practiced a lot of Zen mm-hmm. and Tai Chi, and I came up with crises in my life that that, that, that makes me think that that I lack that personal relationship with God, and I've been, and, and that's, that's the only thing that, that could really liberate me. I would say this: you don't have to choose. Well, I mm-hmm. think of it as a question of choice, and I think for a lot of um, people. As you go through these stages, uh, the practices appropriate for you and uh, are more jnana practices. Certain stages, they're more bhakti sorts of practices. Uh, for instance, in the terms I use, there, there are two, four basic practices, but at the two ends of the spectrum, there's inquiry, which is uh, not intellectual knowledge, but using the mind, you know, Zen, very Zen-like. And at the other end is uh, devotional practice, practices of surrender and so mm-hmm. forth. Right now, if you start off as a bhakti in devotional practices, you read the bhaktis like Lalishwari or Mirabai. They get to a certain stage, and they're going through this rapture and being in the presence of the divine and having this relationship. And then it dries up for them, and then they realize they have to go back and do that inquiry. They have to look into their own lives. They have to see their own. Uh, lust, anger, greed, they have to see their own attachments, it becomes very much of a, an inquiry. They have to root out the obstacles to that relationship. Yeah. Then they go back to that, you see. Yeah, so, I think it also has to do with the source of the suffering that's, that's egging you on. If, if it's, for example, dissatisfaction with your wealth and your job, and your, then it may be, it may be uh, jhana that you need. Uh-huh. But if it's, a, if it's an acute emotional pain from breakup, you know, relationship breakup, then it's because you need that relationship with God, and that's and you were investing that in human relationship. Well, this is I, the Buddhists say. This is why there are many skillful means, because there are many people, and each person, the way they manifest their delusion and suffering is different. You're absolutely right about that. You know, I'm just resisting this idea. I found this; it works for me, so it must be best for everybody. And this always gets people in trouble, and it creates it creates unnecessary conflict. And not even socially, because eventually it becomes my religion is the only religion and yours is, you know. But even inwardly, people then get in a self-conflict about, is one right, is one wrong? And it really, that isn't really the question. The question is to see, what do I need now? And don't even presume that this is going to necessarily be the only thing you need, because you'll cut yourself off from uh, other skillful means. Follow what you need. Let it carries you as far as it can, Right? and then see what happens. Why cut yourself off? The traditions are so rich. They have so much to offer, you know? Does that make any sense? Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay, have some tea, check out the library. Until we see you again, peace to you all.